Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You may be seated. Lord, thank you for this time where we can come here and gather around your word and, um, Lord, beg you to come and by your spirit teach us and show us um, Christ and help us have a greater understanding of the gospel and be sent out to be on mission. Lord, as we look at this new book, Philippians, and seeing in it a dominant theme of joy, I pray that you would begin now dealing with us in our hearts and um, where we find our joy, what it is we try to put our hope in, and um, understanding that true joy comes from Jesus. Um, help us understand what that even means, Lord, as we, as we look at this throughout our entire uh, fall or close to the entire fall, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is, that it helps us know Christ more. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as we said, we're starting a new series today. Uh, Christ Our Joy, and we're studying through the book of Philippians. Uh, if this is your first time or you, or you hadn't been here in a while, what we usually do is just study through books of the Bible. We've been going through the book of Matthew for a year and a half or so, and every once in a while, as we're going through the book of Matthew, we take a little commercial break and do something kind of a short deal and then go back to Matthew because, you know, just going through Matthew forever, <clears throat> I don't want y'all to freak out and be like, this is forever. Matthew again, Fudd? So we take little breaks. Um, and so what we've done is... The last couple of weeks, we talked about gospel-centered discipleship and how we're starting that in the church. And so if you're hopefully uh, getting into those groups. And then last week, we had a, an introduction to Christianity, or for some of us, a reintroduction to Christianity and to, to what that might mean, and looked at 10 kind of big picture things. And now we're going to study Philippians. Uh, and this Philippians is probably going to take, this study in Philippians is probably going to take a couple months, maybe, maybe three. Uh, depending on when we finish, we'll go back to Matthew, unless it's Christmas time right there, and we'll go right after that. So that, that's kind of what the, the plan is. Uh, Philippians has a lot of my favorite verses in the Bible. Philippians is probably my favorite book in the Bible. Well, I love, probably my favorite book in the New Testament. Well, I love the New Testament. Um, favorite Pauline, no, I love those. F- favorite short Pauline epistle. Like it's my favorite short Pauline epistle that starts with P. It's my favorite one. Um, uh, so I, I was just thinking, man, I really do love all, all these other ones too. So I, I love this book. It's been at least one of the reasons why I have such a deep affection for, for the book of Philippians is some of the hardest parts in my life. Um, Jesus has sent me to the book of Philippians and um, Jesus has been my rocks as I, I've read the book of Philippians and there's been a lot of um, big themes that help me see that 
my joy can only be found in him. And this is a big theme of Philippians is joy in Christ. And so um, what we're going to be doing over the course of the fall, since kind of a big dominant theme of the book of Philippians is joy, is identifying this, this idea of joy. Joy is can be elusive sometimes. There's a Chandler, a, a pastor named Matt Chandler out in Texas. He says something um, to this effect every once in a while. He says, happiness is fleeting, but joy abides. And a lot of us sometimes pursue happiness and we don't pursue joy. Happiness can be taken away from you um, in one phone call. You can get a bad, bad phone call about something and then all of a sudden your happiness is gone. So that's not necessarily in the end, what we should be pursuing. The happiness is fine to have, but what we're pursuing is joy, specifically joy in Christ. And we all have joy. It's wired in us, or to, we all have a desire to, to pursue joy. It's wired in us at, young, at very young ages. I've got, I've got four kids, and so uh, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of even give you an illustration of how even at young ages, children pursue joy, uh, their highest at that moment, their highest pleasure, what they seem to find the most happiness in. I have a four, and my four-year-old um, would wake up, and I didn't realize it. He would wake up in the middle of the night. We have, a, we have an, ec- an extra iPod, and so we, we found it that uh, I wasn't even realizing, but one time the evidence was on there where he was laying in bed um, taking pictures of himself, and all the lights were apparently off, and it was just a glow in his face, and he's kind of taking pictures of himself, and we timestamp it, and it was like 2 a.m. in the uh, 2 a.m., and so we figured out that he was coming downstairs and waking up and coming downstairs and playing the iPod, and so uh, <laughs> we, I heard one time at 2.30, I was laying in bed at 2.30, and there was these noises, and I wake up, and I walk out there, and he's just, it's dark room, and there's just a glow coming up out of the couch, and I'm like, buddy, what you doing? Playing the iPod. You're like, it's no big deal. What are you talking about? I'm playing the iPod. Um, and I was like, it's 2.30 in the morning. You got to go to sleep. And so he just, you know, can't believe it that I just, you know, ruined his fun. Oh, I got to go back to bed. Like, buddy, it's 2.30 in the morning. So I figured it out. We start hiding everything. And, um, and so I, I hide it. And it usually comes down the couch. So I just laid a little pillow there and laid a blanket. And I knew that I was going to hide everything. He's going to you know, he's going to come come down. I'm going to win. The next morning I come out there early, early. There he is laying on the couch with the pillow with the blanket on it. I'm just standing over like, I'm smarter than you, man. I'm smarter. But the truth is, um, (laughs) the truth is, is that even at young ages, we are pursuing joy. Like we are always pursuing joy. And so what we're wanting here is to say, through this study, one of the big things we're going to see is that um, Paul is writing about joy and we need to pursue joy in Christ, to have a deep abiding joy in Christ, not just mere happiness. And some of you might be dealing with this. Some of you might be struggling, looking for a job or trying to get that raise or wondering why everything always seems to work out for that person and not me, my sister, my best friend. And I'm always like never, ever seeming to have those things. Um, maybe you're wanting a husband or a wife and it doesn't seem to be happening. All these things are kind of going on. And what we're wanting to see as we look through this is that we're wanting to have joy. Some of you might think you've already achieved joy. Like, I've, I've found it, but I've got joy, but it's not in Jesus. And that will come crashing down one day. And so this next couple months, we are going to be in the pursuit of joy in Christ, looking at this particular book. So when it comes to joy, and Paul writing specifically about joy, I want us to remember that Paul's not writing, you know, with some easy, happy life. Paul is writing with a, uh, a difficult position that he's in as he's writing about joy. So just as a way of reminder, I think I may have said this before, but 
as Paul is writing, I'm going to give a little bit of background in just a second, but as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing from a prison. And prison at that time is not like it is where it is today, where you get to lift weights and carve out shivs that you can stab people with and trade cigarettes for stamps and have air conditioning and three square meals a day and your own toilet and all that kind of stuff. That's not what Paul's writing from. He's writing from a first century prison, and he hasn't been put in prison for a crime. He's been put in prison for his faith. And so it's a whole different thing like it is than what it is today. So he's in a first century prison where you, you don't have your own toilet and you're mistreated and all these kinds of things. And he's telling a certain people, you should have joy in Christ. So he's not writing from some lofty experience. From a prison, he's telling people, you need to understand that you should um, have joy in Jesus. And let me just give you a kind of a big backdrop outline of where I see this dominant theme of joy coming through this book of Philippians, and then we'll give you a little bit of background on how this book was written. For some of you, that might be review, but for some of you that have no idea, I want you to understand how this book kind of got its shape and, and what's the uh, occasion of Paul's writing it. But as you go through the book of Philippians, you'll see joy and rejoice. And these are just interchangeable words. We can even see in English how they're interchangeable. They have the same meaning. And this is um, kind of a quick overview of where we see the, the word joy. In Philippians 1.4, Paul says he prays with joy. In Philippians 1.18, he, he said that he rejoices with that Christ has proclaimed. Even if people have bad motives as they're proclaiming Christ, he says, I'm rejoicing that they're proclaiming Christ. In 125, he says that as long as he's on earth, he'll remain for the, for the Philippians' joy in the faith. In 2.2, he's asking for the Philippians to complete his joy. In 2.17.18, he is glad and rejoices with the Philippians. In 2.28, he's sending a guy named Epaphroditus. Don't name your kid that. Um, that so that the Philippians might rejoice. I mean, if you do, you know, whatever. But 2.29... Uh, tells the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus with joy. And 3.1, he's rejoicing in the Lord. And 4.1, he's telling the Philippians that they're his joy. And 4.4, he says it twice, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then lastly, in 4.10, he's rejoicing in the Lord at the Philippians' concern for him. So there's a big theme here that's running through it. Not every thought that's written in the book of Philippians is about joy, but it is a big theme, and he, he mentions it a lot. And so um, one of the big things that we're going to be pulling out and really striving for this fall, all of us, is finding our joy in Christ, no matter what the circumstances might be. Finding our joy in Christ, not having happiness rooted in something else. So let me give you a little bit of uh, background on how this book was written. I've got four opening encouragements that, that are here that we're going to go through today. That really in verses 1 through 11, there's kind of four opening encouragements that Paul encourages the Philippians with. And those four opening encouragements, I'm thinking that we can have, well, that's encouraging for us. So that's, that's, that's what we're going to do. Now, here's the deal. We're only going to do three of them because one of them has five sub points. <laughs> and so there's no way that would just take me forever. So I'm going to, I'm just going to do three of them. And that other one that with the five sub points, that'll just be next week's sermon. So, um, and so it could be that we have a short sermon. It was short in first service, but what we'll do is I'll just add 15, 20 minutes on next week. So it balances out. Um, that's a joke. So back, <laughs> back in the day, whenever Paul was a guy named Saul, he was walking around trying to kill Christians. That's what he was before he came to know Christ. He wanted to kill as many Christians as he, as he could. He was a Pharisee. He tells us this in chapter three. Um, and he was a very, very zealous person. And so, and that never changed. His personality didn't change, 
his identity changed, but his personality didn't change. He's always very zealous to kill Christians, and he became one very zealous to make people Christians. So after he became a Christian, you can see that story in Acts chapter 9. It's a radical thing. It's probably never happened to you. A big light shined out of heaven, blinded him, and became a Christian. Had a, had a one-on-one conversation with Jesus, pretty scary. And then after that, he began um, missionary journeys. As soon as he got saved, he's like, well, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm just going to go make as many Christians as we can. And his, his job as a missionary was what's known as more of frontier missions, meaning that he would go to the most unreached t- places. He would go to where there's nobody there and just get in there and see, all right, there's some crazy people here. No one knows Christ. I'm going to try to make as many Christians as I can. I'll spend a little bit of time here. I'll set up some, some people. I'll set up a church. I'll set up some, some leadership in the church. And then I'm going to go. And then that, the Holy Spirit will kind of take care of that in that next set of missions. And I'm going to go to another place, frontier missions, always wanting to go to the, to the unreached people. He was a, a missionary to the Gentiles. And so around uh, 35 AD, a couple of years after Christ's um, death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He became a missionary, and then he went on these, he began these three missionary journeys where he was going to do frontier missions. There's some debate on that fourth missionary journey. I hold to three. I know you don't care, but I just wanted to tell you. So um, I hold to three. So he's going in these missionary journeys, and while he's going on the second missionary journey, where he would go to a particular town, he would preach the gospel, people would get saved, he would begin setting up the church. Um, he was going around in the second missionary journey. It's around A.D. 40 right now. So he's been a Christian for probably five years or so. Um, and he's around this region of Macedonia. Now, the book of Acts tells us like the historical sketch of, of the way the early church began. And in the book of Acts, you can see kind of this life of Paul as he's walking around from city to city, going on those missionary journeys, doing the frontier missions. And in Acts chapter 16, we see where Paul gets an understanding that God wants him to go to the city of Philippi, which is who he wrote this this book for. So what's going on in Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 9, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there. Macedonia is kind of the region, and in that region you have the city of Philippi. So there's a man, a Macedonian, in Paul's dream just standing there saying, Paul, come on, we need you. And so you can see a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. We need the gospel, basically. So verse 10 says, and when Paul had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go on to into Macedonia, concluding, brilliant conclusion, God had called us to preach the gospel to him. So um, in verse 11, it says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. I know y'all are very familiar with these ancient cities. And then following the day to Neapolis. And then from there, to Philippi. So he goes into Philippi, and it, which is a leading city of this big region or district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And it says that we remain there from, for some days. And if you continue reading in the narrative or in the story in Acts chapter 16, you can see that he leads a lady named Lydia to Christ who sells purple goods. And then after that, he leads a lady that's a fortune teller, kind of like Miss Cleo. Y'all know who that is? And he leads like Miss Cleo to Christ and the two guys get crazy, that owner. And then after that, he gets put in jail because of that. And then he leads the jailer and his family to Christ throughout chapter 16. So that's his core group right there. A jailer and his family, the crazy fortune teller lady, and Lydia, the the purple goods. That's the core group for the church plant. So certainly he's got to get some more leadership in there. And he he gets kind of a little church plant set up there in in Philippi, (coughs) and then he's gone. And so... 
He's instructed by God to go make uh, disciples there in Philippi. He does that. And then you can see he sets up that little church plant. Now, from that, he continues and goes to other, to other uh, towns and, you know, continues in his missionary journey. But what happens is those particular people that are, become Christians, the church grows in, in, in Philippi. And so um, they know who Paul is. They love Paul. They, they try to help out Paul. Paul has a deep affection for those people. Um, and so he's continuing on on his missionary journeys. And while he's on one of his missionary journeys, while he's in Rome, they put him in prison. And so while he's in prison, these people back over here in Philippi, they hear Paul's in prison. We love Paul. We don't want Paul to be suffering. We want to help Paul. And so they decide that they're going to get together a gift. We don't know what it is. The book of Philippians just continually calls it a gift. And they say, we're going to send a gift to Paul while he's in prison. So they say, come here, Paphroditus. And they give the Paphroditus the gift. And they say, go to Rome and give Paul that gift. And so he goes over there and gives Paul that gift. While he's there, Epaphroditus gets really sick. As a matter of fact, Philippians 2.27, it says, to the point of death. He almost dies, but he doesn't. God heals him. He's restored. And so Paul, as he's over here in a Roman prison, um, who made disciples of this, of this church back a long time ago. This is now about AD 60. So it's probably 20 years after the church was planted. He's in jail. He's very, very thankful that Epaphroditus would risk his own life to bring him the gift. He's very, very thankful that the church would even think of him to give him a gift. And so he's, he's sitting there. And before Epaphroditus goes back to Philippi, he goes, I want to write a letter thanking the church for what they've done. So he writes the letter, gives it to Epaphroditus, and he, he goes back home. And the letter is the book of Philippians. So that's, that's how the book of Philippians came about. That's why it was because Paul was so thankful for this gift of a, uh, that they had sent to him, and it was a church that he had planted about 20 years ahead of time, beforehand. He sends the letter back with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus brings it back, and they all get to read it. And it's a letter to them, thanking them for the gift. We're going to see that as he talks about it. Thanking them for the gift that he gave. Also, he's thanking them for their generosity. Also, he's wanting to encourage them in their faith. He's wanting them to have joy in Christ. And also, as you read through it, you can also tell that there's a an ongoing obvious, deep love that Paul has for the people of Philippians. I mean, it just overflows with, it's almost gushy. You know what I mean? Like, come on, Paul. Like, you just, you're going on and on about how much you love them. We're going to see that in a second, but, which is good, but it's a little gushy. But he, I mean, he loves them. It's, it's very different than Galatians. Like, as soon as you get to verse 6, he just rails Galatians for about six chapters. You know, he just, or five chapters. He just, he just, it's very different. This is a letter that where Paul just overflows, helping them see how much he loves them. So today we're going to look at um, the very beginning, verses 1 through 11. And this is, this is the, the opening, the opening encouragements of, of people he loves very dearly, and he's wanting to encourage them. So as we're going to see those opening encouragements that he gives them, those opening encouragements are also applicable for us, and they are things that we can be encouraged by. So we're going to start at verse 1. And when we get to three, that, that's my first one. And then we're going to skip number one and, and go to two. Because number one is going to have five subpoints, And so we're going to actually come back and do the first encouragement next week. So on the screen, you're going to see four encouragements. And then it's going to start with a two. That's, that's planned. All right, that's planned. So I'm not crazy. So verse one, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And so Paul and Timothy are both there. And I want you to note this word servants because I want you to see that it's a little bit different. Um, servants of Christ Jesus in verse one. And you can also, if you read down to the very end of verse one, you can see with the overseers and deacons. That word deacon is actually servant as well. We, it's, 
transliterated, meaning taken that Greek word and made an English word that never existed before. They took diakonos and just made it an English word, deacon. But the diakonos, if you translate it, is just servant. And so Paul here is saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, and I'm also writing to the overseers and the servants of Philippi. But those two words are different. This word deacon, diakonos, is what an office of the church is. You have the overseers, elders, pastors. That's all the same word, same person. They, they preach and teach the word of God. They oversee the church. And he's also writing to the deacons or the servants, but that's more signifying an office in a church. Here Paul says, I'm a servant. I'm a doulos. I'm a bond servant. I'm a slave. In other words, he's saying, I care so deeply and I care so affectionately about you that I want you to know that my posture towards you is one of servant slave. I'm not even claiming leadership in the church deacon, although Paul would probably be more of the elder. He's just saying, I'm a doulos to you. I'm a servant slave to you. I am, I am in submission to you because I care about you so much. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Paul starts letters, he always, well, always, he usually never says servant. He calls himself an apostle. When he writes to other churches, he says, Paul, an apostle, because he's wanting to claim authority over them and help them understand that he has the authority to write these things. But in this one, in this deep, loving, moving letter of people that he just cares about, he, he submits himself, he shows his humility and says, I'm a servant to you. I'm a doulos to you, which is only going to strengthen the argument in Philippians chapter 2, whenever, if you're familiar with Philippians 2, where he talks about, you need to be humble. You should be humble just like Jesus. That's kind of the whole point of that first point of Philippians 2. So he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And I just think this is pretty awesome. I mean, Paul was used by God to see most of the first generation Christians or saints um, come to Christ. And yet I just love how he still considers himself as he writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus. I love how he says, but I'm a servant. But he was used by God to see most of the first century or the first generation Christians there in Philippi to come to know Christ. And then he says to all the elders and, pa- and elders, or it says overseers, to all the el- overseers and deacons. And again, that word overseers, just pastor, elders, just basically what I am. So, um, and he's writing to them and he tells you, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, which is his standard greeting, grace and peace. And then he goes to verse three. Now, verse three through five is that first point. And you can see it's, it's about prayer. He's encouraging them regarding prayer. And he says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you and all my prayer of mine. And you can look at verse nine where it says, and it is my prayer. So all that is verses three through five and nine through 11 is all about his prayer for them and about the prayer and all that kind of stuff. So I'm gonna kind of put that over to the side and we're gonna come back to that. That's the first encouragement and it's about prayer. We're gonna put that to the side though and come back to that next week. And today we're going to start instead after three through five, right at verse six. And we're going to look at three encouragements today. And the fourth one will be next week on, and we're going to start at verse six and let those encouragements see us. Or we'll see those in six, seven, and eight. So go to verse six and we're going to see that first encouragement. And I mean, we have quoted, I have at least, I know, quoted this verse to you over and over and over and over. So you should be very familiar with it if you've been here for any particular time at all. Verse six says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And what he's talking about is their salvation. And he's saying, I am absolutely certain that he, God, who began a good work, your salvation in you is absolutely going to make sure that that particular salvation that he began into you, it is going to definitely come to an 
a clear, definite completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is reminding them that their sanctification, it's kind of a big word, it just means their growing in holiness, is an absolute thing that will happen in them, through them, not because of them, but primarily because of God. He is going to do it. Now, if you're like me, that is really, really, really good news. Here's why. Let's go ahead and look at this point two. It should be point two. Open encouragements and one's next week. God will make your sanctification happen. That's verse six. This is why that's important. Sanctification is a part of salvation. If you uh, are a believer, you know that there was a moment where in your life you all of a sudden understood the gospel and that was called regeneration, big word, but basically just means you understood the gospel. Jesus is something you understand, and then whenever you put your faith in Christ, that's the justification, if you will, but that's just the moment you put your faith in Christ, and then you live right there from that moment when you know you're a Christian until you die, and you have to go through this process called sanctification. So sanctification means there is a sure path that you're on where until you die, you're going to continue to grow and grow and grow and become more like Christ, more holy. And I know, like, when I think about that, I think, <laughs> well, I know my life. It sure doesn't feel that way. It seems like my sin keeps happening, and it's become very, very frustrating. And whenever I sin, I feel this deep angst, and I hate that, oh, I sinned against Jesus again. I know that it's not counted against me, that it was put on Christ, and I know that I'm forgiven, and I'm in Christ, and I'm thankful for that. But still, whenever I do it, I don't like it. I, I don't like sinning against Jesus. It makes me feel terrible. And so I wonder, is this going to ever happen? And like, am I going to be sanctified? Am I going to keep growing? And here's the great news. Whenever you feel that, and maybe you feel that, I'm, I'm probably certain if you're human, you feel that sometimes. Here's a great encouragement. Every single one of us need to bank on verse six. It is an absolute for sure thing if you are in Christ Jesus that you are going to grow in Christ's likeness, in holiness, in sanctification. We need to hear that whenever we have sinned again and we're just devastated and we can't believe that we would do that. How can I do that as a follower of Jesus? I don't know, but the promise from God is you are going to be sanctified. Here's some, some uh, I think, evidence that helps us understand that we can have this confidence. Psalm 138.8 says this, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The work of God's hands, if you're a believer, is that he has saved you. And what he's saying is the Lord will fulfill his purpose. Meaning that this is a promise in Philippians 1.6 that he's going to sanctify you. And you can just praise God that it's going to happen. Thank you, Lord, that it's going to happen. Now we know as we look at Philippians 2, I think it's 11 and 12, that we still have to do, we still have to pursue holiness. And all the while, while we do it, at the end, we say, Christ has done this in me. I did my part, but really it was all Christ that did it in me. So, um... The ESV study Bible, as it's commenting on this, says that genuine spiritual progress, this is sanctification, growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus, genuine spiritual progress is rooted in what God has done at the cross, is doing in your life, and will do. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So here's what this means. I can't wait to listen to this. This is so good. Um, Verse 6, the truth of this is so awesome. Verse six then gives us confidence, gives us confidence that one day we are going to be fully sanctified, completely holy. That, that day we are, 
that we die, when we are ushered into the kingdom, that's the moment when we are completely Christ-like, when you will sin no more. You will not feel any tendencies or desires to want to sin anymore. So that verse 6 is telling us that we can have absolute confidence that one day we are going to be sanctified. We are going to be made like Jesus. We are not going to sin anymore. We are finally going to be what we've already been declared. We are going to be perfected and we are going to do what we've been created to do perfectly, which is worship Jesus. That is tremendous news. I want to read that again because there's so much in there. I want you to hear all this. Verse 6 gives us confidence that we will absolutely be fully sanctified, that we will be made like Jesus, that we will sin no more. We will be what we have been declared. We have been declared righteous, and we will be completely perfected, and we will do what we've been created to do, which is worship, and we will do it perfectly. We will worship Jesus perfectly perfectly one day whenever we're in heaven. Verse six, all that's in there. So the first thing that I think is amazingly encouraging, and I'm hoping it's encouraging you, is God will make your sanctification happen. It's an absolute sure thing. That's something to get up for every single day. That's something to jump out of the bed and just scream and shout every morning. God's gonna sanctify me today. I'm getting up and going after it. So it's a huge reason to be excited. I know it seems crazy, but seriously, y'all got to be excited about this. This is amazing. God is going to absolutely sanctify you. No more sin in your life ever. Beautiful, beautiful. And so Paul, who deeply loves the Philippians, is wanting them to know that. So as we go into verse 7, we're going to see now where we're getting to that as I talked about some of the um, <laughs> mushy language of Paul. And this is, this is our second or third encouragement, whatever, you know what I mean. Um, it's the second one of the day, the third one on the list. So here it is in verse seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you because, look at this, I hold you in my heart. Notice some of this dear language he's using. I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment and my defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he starts it up again. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So let's, there's two phrases in there that you can see. I'm holding you in my heart. This is a deep, um, a, a deep kind of affectionate language that Paul is using for them. And he's saying that he actually yearns for them with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So you can see here from this language that Paul deeply loves these people. Deeply loves these people. And it's all rooted and grounded in Christ. This isn't, you know, the love story kind of thing where at the end, you know, there's, he's going to get the girl or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. It's not a Hollywood movie because he says, I yearn, Christ is my witness and I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so this is, this is a Christ honoring, Christ exalting deep love that he has for them. So here's the second, well, what we can see is that Paul is actively expressing his love for them. So the second encouragement that I want you to get from this is you should actively express your love for others. Now, we got to be careful here, okay? We got to be really careful because when I say actively express your love for others, we can automatically start thinking, well, yeah, we should do that. I should just make sure I tell my kids I love them. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't. Tell my kids I love them. Tell my wife I love her and blah, blah, blah. And listen, that's just good advice. I mean, non-Christians know to do that. So what we're trying to do is take this, this encouragement that Paul is giving them and understand that this should be rooted 
in, in a Christian understanding. So this isn't just good advice. Like, make sure you tell everybody that you love them. Call your mom today when you get home after lunch and say, Mom, I just love you so much. That, you should, maybe, but that's not exactly what we're talking about here. We are talking about verbally giving expressions of people to love, but Paul, the only thing he could do is, is write a letter because he's in prison. That's the only way that he could do it. However, when I say actively express love for others, here he's doing it verbally in the letter. But we also have to remember he had already um, actively expressed love for them back in Acts chapter 16 where he went to the unreached people who didn't know Christ and was bold enough to go tell them about Jesus. He held out the message of the gospel of them too. So when we say actively express love for others. We're wanting to root it in a Christian thought, which means, yes, you absolutely do express your genuine love for people that are in your family and your friends, etc. But also, that's the verbal expression, but also in a physical expression where we want to declare and demonstrate, declare the gospel to them, tell them about Christ and his work on the cross and what he's done, and then demonstrate or um, share and show, if that's easier to remember, but demonstrate the effects of the gospel. The, the gospel has had a profound effect on me. Therefore, the effects that it has means that I should demonstrate that to you. If you have a need, I should demonstrate the gospel's effect by meeting your needs, which means if you know people that have physical needs, whether it be they need uh, a gift card to Walmart to go buy food for their family or they have a flat tire or they, I mean, you can fill in the blank from something small all the way up to something massive. We should actively express love for people by declaring the gospel to them, demonstrating or showing the gospel. And as we do that, it's not just an end of itself. We do that because we truly love them. We truly care about them and we want them to hear the declaration of the gospel. And so this is what I mean when we say actively express love for others like Paul is doing it's not just a trite thing that just says over and over, hey, I just want to let you know I love you. And, you know, it's not, it's not that. It's, it's more than that. It's a, a clear physical demonstration of the gospel's effects on you and your deep, deep desire that they would know Christ or if they are in Christ and, and, and circumstances in their life have just beat them down that you can come alongside them and Tell them who they are in Christ. Remind them of the gospel. Lift them up. Meet their needs. Be their, their friend in Christ, etc., etc. So that's, that's, that's what we mean by the uh, actively express love for others. Now, um, continuing on there, in verses 7 and 8, I want you to see the fourth encouragement, the third of the day, which is right there in verse 7. So you can see it. It's right for me to feel this way about you, for I hold you in my heart. Four, and then we're going to see this little section right there, that little clause. That's going to be our third one, that clause in the sentence which says, you are, quote, partakers with me of grace. How are they partakers of, partakers of grace with Paul? In two ways. In my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. So let's think about this for a second. Paul's the one in prison. And it's crazy. He's actually calling that a partaking of grace. Pretty amazing. I'm partaking of grace in prison. Is that grace? That doesn't feel like grace, Paul. Um, so that's the one way. And also, he's saying, I'm partaking of grace by being able to defend and confirm the gospel's work in my life. And even more than that, which is amazing, he's saying that you Philippians, 
It's not just me partaking in this grace, although it feels like if, who's partaking in the grace of the imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel? Well, Paul is. Paul's saying, it's not just me. It's also you because you have, out of a genuine love for me, associated with me, given a gift to me, shown deep affections for me, supported me as I've gone and do it. So you're partakers of this grace along with me in our imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul is reminding them that they are actual partakers of grace with him in a couple ways. We'll look at them. One is the imprisonment. How is it that being in prison is grace? That doesn't feel like grace. Well, we kind of talked about this last week and on and on. We've done it a lot, but let's look at uh, partaking of grace through the lens of this. Matthew 5, 11 and 12 says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you Okay, I'm blessed when others revile me and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is what Christ says. So when we, are, when we are reviled and persecuted and uttered evil things against us on the account of Christ, then we're blessed. And this is exactly what's going on with Paul. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for they persecuted the prophets who are before you as well. So now we can understand what it means to say, I'm partaking in grace when it comes to prison. We saw this last week in, in Hebrews when it says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property in Hebrews 10.34. So he is partaking of grace in a circumstance of suffering. And he's actually saying that you Philippians are even partaking of that grace with me, though you're not the, the primary recipients of it. And the second way is by the defense and confirmation of the gospel. By the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Let's just say something obvious here. I think this is pretty obvious. Um, but every single one of us are going to be used differently by God for God. So some of you have amazing evangelism skills and you will lead hundreds to Christ. Some of you don't have that and leading Two people to Christ over your lifetime is exactly what God wanted you to do. And he is absolutely pleased with you because of that. And so the quick thing I would say is, well then, (laughs) you know, unless I'm Paul, God's not happy with me. He's only happy if I'm Paul. Otherwise, you know, I'm just the kind of, the the guy that sits on the sideline and doesn't get to do a whole lot. He's got to be really pleased with Billy Graham. But when I get there, he's going to be like, bud, come on. I mean, look at these other guys. And so Paul's saying, And I think this is key for us. He's saying that you are all partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment. He's saying that you can identify and you are somehow in a sense with me in this partaker of grace. And so when we're talking about the defense and confirmation of the gospel, Calvin says this, we have all been called to make a confession of our faith and we have been chosen by Christ as an advocate to plead his cause. So if you are in Christ, you've been chosen by Christ to be someone who would go actively out and plead his cause to other people. And so here's the big picture now. Let me, let me give you the big picture. Paul's reminding them that their partakers are grace with him in the, the uh, imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so therefore we should realize that we are partakers of grace far more broadly than we ever thought of or imagined. Far more broadly. And he's not hoping, or he's not mad at us if we're not going to be the superstar Christian that leads tons of people. So point number four, rejoice because you are a partaker of the grace of God. Rejoice. You are a partaker 
of the, of the grace of God. Whatever the circumstance is in your life, if you have had a circumstance happen in your life, and you, you might not be imprisoned, but you still might have some level of suffering or circumstance in your life that may make you feel like, this is terrible. How is this grace? God is saying that that circumstance, that suffering or whatever is grace in your life, just like it was. Also, because he has saved you, her, his grace is now called you out to come be someone who's going to go plead his cause. That's what we mean by this defense and confirmation of the gospel. Like Calvin says, we have been, if you're in Christ, chosen by Christ to be an advocate to go plead his cause. That's grace. That's an amazing grace to think that he chose me. Just, I've got nothing. I bring nothing to the table. And yet he still decided to say, yes, I want to save you. And as I've saved you, I've chosen you that you would go be an advocate to plead the cause of Christ. In other words, be someone that would carry out the gospel message of what's happened to me to go tell other people, which means that's a perfect candidate. So wherever you are, you can think to yourself, I mean, I am not a good candidate here. He needs the, the, the better spoken people, the ones that can do all kinds of stuff. There's not really much I bring to the table in order to be able to do a whole lot of work for his kingdom, I feel like. And what he's saying is, that's when you're perfect. That's when you're perfect. It's because you realize that the defense and confirmation of the gospel is he's called you out to be an advocate to plead his cause. And you, based on what Christ has done in your life, go and do that as well. So rejoice because you are an absolute partaker in the grace of God, not just for it to terminate on you, but to also go and extend out to others and extend the message of the gospel to them as well. So that's the first three encouragements that we're going to look at today. We're going to not have enough time to look at the other one. I know you're feeling like, wow, FUD's done? That's amazing. I know. Like I said, we're going to add a lot of time next week for it. So um, what we're going to do, though, in, in a way by, by way of conclusion is I want to focus back in on verse 6. And that's going to be our time of conclusion as we go into worship. And I want you to just consider again with me. The amazing truth that verse 6 says. In Christ, it is absolute certainty that he who began a good work in you, if you are in Christ, this good work of salvation that he has started is going to absolutely come to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is no question. You struggle, you have sin, you have ongoing things in your life that you know that you're just tired of. I'm so tired of sinning against God. I'm so tired of it. And he's saying, You don't have to go crazy about that anymore. You don't have to beat yourself up about that anymore. You can take heart and have tons of encouragement because your sanctification, your spiritual progress is an absolute certain thing that's going to happen. I think that's just so encouraging to know that my holiness is going to happen especially whenever last week, last month, or you fill in the blank whenever you feel like you just blew it again. I just, I just absolutely wrecked it again. It's so encouraging to know that, and I want to read it one more time, that we have confidence knowing that one day we are absolutely going to be fully sanctified, fully set apart, fully holy. We are going to be made just like Jesus. We are going to sin no more. We are going to finally be completely what we have already been declared we are going to be perfected and we are going to at that moment finally do perfectly what we've been created to do, namely worship Jesus. 
It's going to be a great and glorious day. And so here, in this moment, we're going to have reflections of that, shadows of that, moments of that, where we are going to do that now. We're going to extend out with all that we can, where we are spiritually, worship to Christ, thanking him for his salvation, and doing what, we, what he's called us to do, which is give our lives over in worship. So we're going to stand here now and worship Jesus in song for a few, time, for a few songs, and then I'll come up and, and say some few more things a little bit later. So I'm going to turn over to Ben, um, and we're going to worship together. But first, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And I just thank you, God, that you have promised in your word that we are going to be fully sanctified. What, a, what an amazing promise that one day, though we don't worship you perfectly now with our lives, we will worship you perfectly with our lives. We, we long for and strive for and are in desperate pursuit of that joy in Christ that gives us that chance to finally do that, Lord. And so now, as we are gathered together here, we want to um, because of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel and what Christ has done in our life, extend to you worship now. So be with us now as we worship God. I pray that the truth of Philippians 1.6 would wash over us afresh and that we would sing out to you in response and gratefulness in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.